Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. As we've looked at cultural issues over the past couple of months, we come to one that probably raises some questions in your mind, it does mine, when we ask the question, should we be woke? And the obvious question that most of us that are over 50, and I'm well beyond that, is what in the world is woke? Well, let me show you a picture of woke. Let me introduce to those of you who do not know who these are, Essie Mae McDonald and T.B. Maston, married for over 60 years. He was born in 1897 in Jefferson County, eastern Tennessee, went to Carson Newman and then came here in the 20s when Southwestern Seminary was just over a dozen years old, and never left because L.R. Scarborough saw something in T.B. Maston that Southwestern Seminary and Southern Baptist and Baptist and Christians alike around the world needed somebody to teach woke. He did it for over 40 years at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, along with other colleagues of mine, like Bill Step, who I also think is a picture of woke. I had the privilege of being back on the faculty for about a year before he died in 1988. He died at the age of 91. Woke. Here's a good picture of it. You see, in the 1930s, he began teaching courses on race relations and began teaching about harmony and unity between the races, began advocating desegregation 20 years before the Supreme Court turned on that light. He published at least three major works on race relations, was a member of the Urban League, yes, and the NAACP. You see, he was well ahead of his years. He taught many things that people at that time did not, dis- did not agree with not just whites, not just Caucasians, but also some of his black and brown people of color who disagreed with him. But he taught nevertheless. He took a stand on what he believed the Bible said about wokeness. You know, he said this. Every teacher, and that's what he was, he was never ordained, He never took ordination because he believed that that was not God's calling for him. But he was chosen for his vocation as a teacher. He said every teacher, and then he said, he went beyond that, and he said every preacher ought to teach or preach some things that his people do not agree with. And I hope that there's some things that I I preach that you don't necessarily agree with 100%. Because, folks, there's some things that I preach 
that I don't 100% agree with. <laughs> Why? Because when we come to the Scripture and we really look at things critically, transparently, the Scripture convicts our hearts, and we come to a realization that some of the things that we have believed are not right. So Maston was right, I think. You know, his central teaching in ethics, he was asked about in an interview in 1984, what was his central teaching in ethics? And he said, it's the ethic of the cross. He said, Jesus lived that. He didn't just die on the cross. He lived the cross every day of his life. Every person he healed, every person that he fed, every person that he raised from the dead took out of him divine energy, took a part of him, and he sacrificed part of himself throughout all of his life and ministry, not just on the cross, but then on the cross. He gave of himself so that we might have life. And that is the ethic of the cross. He calls us to do the same thing. He calls us to give of ourselves selflessly and to sacrifice so that others might have life. I think that's a part of what woke is. But exactly what is woke? What do we mean when we look at T.B. and S.E.M.A. Maston? And we say, this is a picture of woke. Well, you know, the early roots of it in America go back to a Pan-African movement, maybe in the early part of the century. An example of it, Marcus Garvey, who pictured himself as a kind of savior and leader of global Pan-Africanism. He was from Jamaica. And he began to call upon blacks to be politically conscious, self-sufficient. And he had actually ag he advocated segregation of the races, that blacks ought to be self-sufficient. That's not necessarily wokeness. But what he was saying was they needed to be aware of their situation and to become self-sufficient. This idea began to be mainstreamed in the middle of the 20th century with singers like Lead Belly, blues singer, Actually, Huddy William Ledbetter was his name. He sang a song in the early 1930s called Scottsboro Boys. It was about a group of nine young men, black men, who had been falsely accused of raping a white woman. And he sang a warning in that song about those traveling in Alabama. He said, I advise everybody to be a little careful when they go down through there. Just stay woke. Keep your eyes open. I'm from Alabama. I'm 72 years old. I remember some of those days, and some of those situations still continue today. In the mid-20th century, this idea of wokeness became, I guess, encapsulated in the idea of being well-informed, culturally aware. And then in the early 2000s, Erica Badu sang a song called Master Teacher in which she said, I stay woke which meant I am self-aware, and I question dominant social paradigms that challenge that. And today, current rappers have taken it another to another level, radically opposing racial abuse by the majority culture. Rappers with whom I'm not aware, but many of you listen to young people, Jay-Z and Eminem and J. Cole and Vic Mensa, all have had albums in 2016 and 17 that focused on this issue of woke. And then we know what happened. In 2013, the Black, the Black Lives Matter movement gained momentum and appropriated it. 
and used wokeness to heighten people's awareness of police abuse. And now woke has become a keystone of left-wing political ideology. Now, I'm not equating those two things. I'm going to talk about Black Lives Matter when we discuss critical race theory in a few weeks. Those are not necessarily identical. But the idea is now wokeness has expanded to address other issues beyond race. To any issue involves social inequality. You see, it's more than being prejudiced and discriminatory about race. It's being vigilant. Wokeness, in a political terms, is being vigilant and outspoken and taking assertive action against discrimination and inequity. Now, let me talk a little bit about what I consider to be radical wokeness. Because there are many kinds of definitions for what woke is. I believe radical wokeness is this. You see, it's come to the point now when somebody says woke out there in society politically, what they mean is it incorporates radical political activism, which includes critical race theory, which includes intersectionality, which includes anti-American exceptionalism, which includes cancel culture. We're going to be addressing some of those things and what the Bible says about them. Wokeness for many means critical race theory, and that is simply put, and I'll talk about it later, America's original sin is racism. You see, race is really a social construct which is used to exploit people of color. America's original sin is racial discrimination, and it's become normalized and institutionalized as a permanent part of American society. Critical race theory says that all American institutions are thoroughly racist, promote white supremacy, and purposely or maybe unintentionally discriminate against people of color. Critical race theory says that all white persons are inherently race, racist. You see, what they mean is we commit microaggressions against people of color every day, sometimes without knowing it. And we all experience, those of us who are white, white privilege. And that is, we live in a society that tips the socioeconomic balance in our favor. That is incorporated by some in wokeness. Some, it's intersectionality also. What is this? It means that wokeness is not just about race. It covers all issues of inequality and injustice. It extends in every direction to people who are oppressed. And it causes those minority groups to respond in what we would call identity politics. So sexism is we live in a male-dominated society that oppresses women. Classism, the rich oppress the poor. Elitism in the academy. Intellectuals oppress minorities in the academies. Genderism, cisgender or binary, that is male-females, oppress sexual minorities. People with gender dysphoria. Ageism. The younger generation ignores and maybe even exploits the older generation. Ableism, physically able people, most of us in here are, you see, ignore or mistreat the disabled. That comes under the umbrella of wokeism today in politics. There's an anti-American exceptionalism that goes along with political wokeism. Opposed to the positive American ideals that many of us hold dearly, that is, liberty and equality of all before the law, we consider to be American ideals. Individual responsibility, 
and republican government, not a monarchy, not tyranny, laissez-faire economics, which necessarily includes capitalism. The negative critique of wokeism is that America has never been a truly free democracy, that all of its institutions are historically flawed with racism and social inequality, that American ex exceptionalism, in fact, what it does to Americans is it makes us believe that we're immune to international law and we're better than anyone else. American capitalism is deeply flawed and there needs to be a redistribution of wealth and power. And then, finally, cancel culture. We'll talk about this in, after Christmas. Cancel culture. Anyone who speaks against what are perceived to be social norms today is ostracized. It originates usually from marginalized persons who feel disenfranchised. It's promoted by social media. A mob mentality begins to take over, and there's a popular feeding frenzy. Be careful, young people, what you tweet today, because 15 years from now, somebody will track it down, and it will be used against you. A woman at the University of Tennessee, a sports broadcaster, lost her job this past week because of some th things that she tweeted when she was in high school. She's apologized for them. Be careful what you put on social media because today, in today's cancel culture, people find it out and there are dangerous implications to this. Some would say that some of the things that I say from the pulpit are hate speech because they do not fit right within everyone's idea of political correctness. There's a social intimidation that comes with this, and we are in danger, dangerously close in this America, practically at the grassroots level of losing our freedom of speech. It is political correctness run amok. This woke influence, political woke influence, has caused a reaction and a response in the churches. It's based Ultimately, the political and radical form is based on a couple of things that are not scriptural. One is the Marxist dialectic. That is, there's a historic classic uh, struggle between the classes throughout history, which divides the classes between the oppressed and the oppressor. You see, we have structures in society, structures of authority that are hierarchical, and it causes some to be on top to oppress and those on the bottom to be oppressed. And they say that this must be eliminated. It must be deconstructed. And oh, by the way, the author of those authoritative structures in society, such as government and family, the author is God. And Marx, you know, was an atheist. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who's woke is an atheist. I'm not saying that. But you understand where this can go in its radical form. It's also based on what we have said so many times before. Postmodernity, postmodernism, there's no absolute truth. All institutions and all ideals that we have are simply social constructs, including marriage and family. Traditional structures and beliefs must be deconstructed to relieve oppression and to give maximum freedom to the individual. These two ideas, the Marxist dialectic and this part of postmodernity, are unbiblical. So what do churches do with wokeism? The more, quote, liberal churches, however you define liberal, historically have focused on social justice and social reform, so they're very compatible with it. Long ago, many of those liberal churches drifted away from preaching evangelical essentials from Scripture. And long ago, many of them 
had already aligned with leftist political ideology. It's a fact. But when you look at the conservative side, evangelical churches have begun to appropriate wokeness as well. A new generation of leadership, largely influenced, and I don't mean to cast stones here, but it is what it is, amongst the millennial generation, which tend to be more postmodern in their mindset, have begun to appropriate these ideas out of a sense of popular guilt and influenced by the social global media. It's begun to come into the evangelical churches. And the result of this is that there seems to be a myopic focus in the pulpit and in teaching on social justice. There has been a shift, some would say, from gospel-centered preaching to lectures on social justice in some churches. A shift from preaching of salvation by the atonement of Christ and justification by faith to rescuing people from social oppression. Well, folks, this isn't new. This is over 100 years old. We have this same kind of problem at the end of the 19th century with the social gospel. I don't think everything about the social gospel was wrong, but the exaggerated forms of it did this. They sacrificed the preaching of the evangelical essentials merely for social work. And what has happened in its exaggerated form in our churches is that it aligns the preaching and teaching with political ideologies, political ideologies that oppose biblical principles. So my question is this, are these irreconcilable differences? You see, it seems to be a, dil a dilemma. Should we preach the gospel or should we promote social justice? Because you see, social justice is at the heart of wokeness. Some evangelicals argue strongly against any form of wokeness. What about T.B. Maston? Hmm. You see, they, they would say this, Jesus was not a social revolutionary. His mission was not a secular mission to transform human institutions. His purpose was spiritual redemption to save souls and to free them from sin. I don't disagree with half of those statements. I do believe that he was intent on saving souls, but I question their challenge that he was not about transforming institutions. You see, there are three problems with that approach, I think. One is they cast a false dichotomy. That is, it is either the gospel or social justice. I do not believe that they are opposed to each other. Another false dichotomy is that it says that you must align with a political agenda and they are opposed to each other. You're either liberal or conservative. That is a false dichotomy in the Bible. The real problem is what has happened, I think, in many of our churches is people feel like they need to align with a political ideology in order for their preaching or teaching to be effective. It should be the other way around. A second problem is there's confusion in terminology between social ministry and social justice. What is social ministry? What was the social gospel all about? It was helping individuals, helping individuals meet physical and emotional and spiritual needs. Jesus expects this from us. There's no question about it. We know that. He calls us to do these things to the least of these, his brethren, to feed them, to give them a drink, to take in the stranger, to clothe the unclothed, to visit the imprisoned, to visit the sick. That's social ministry. You see, if we don't show people that we care, 
And if we don't minister to them so that they know that God loves them, they won't listen. They won't listen to all of our preaching and teaching about being saved. We need to do social ministry. Social justice is another thing. It includes social ministry, but it goes beyond it. It goes behind the causes of inequities. It begins to address systemic problems that feed social inequality. You see, it's sort of like social ministry is doing the retail business, and social justice is doing the wholesale business, dealing with the unresolved wholesale problems, like the war on drugs. We are never going to see the war on drugs won by simply putting people who use drugs in prison. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be prosecuted for illegal use. But we know that the real problem that goes behind it is we've got to stop the pushers. We've got to stop the providers. That's the problem behind the epidemic. I think there's a parallel here. You see, that's what social justice is about. So not only is there a false dichotomy and confusion over terminology, there's also the problem of overstatement, hyperboles. You see, in Christian circles, on one side, if you want to say liberal, and on the other side, if you want to say conservative, whatever labels you use, they demonize each other. You see, liberals, Christians, say that conservative Christians have no social conscience. They're not woke at all. You see, they say that conservatives only treat the symptoms without being concerned about the base problem. They say that conservatives use the Bible to perpetuate a corrupt status quo and, in fact, promote white supremacy. That's a pretty strong indictment. On the other side, many conservative Christians say that liberals have capitulated completely to political correctness. They've abandoned a robust preaching of the gospel. And the conservative Christians often define woke in its most radical terms, like I did a moment ago. And, and there is a radical wokeness with all of its cancel culture and all of that. In other words, that is what woke is. There's no other kind of wokeness. You see, all wokeness is radical and dangerously opposed to Christianity. It is a secular movement that subverts the gospel. And there is no room whatsoever in the church for being woke. So here's my question. Is there? Is there room in the church for woke? And is there anything in the Bible that promotes wokeness? And I think you know what my answer is going to be. As with so many of these issues that we have talked about, folks, what we have is we have people that have politicized and polarized, and they demonize each other on the extreme ends, and they don't seek what the Bible says. I think that wokeness is something like this from a biblical perspective. We need to be awakened. Be woke to the reality of social injustice, not just the need for social ministry. We need to be aware and not just awaken. We need to realize that social inequities do exist, that people today in our society are treated unfairly. But awareness is more than just realizing, it's understanding the problem, having empathy and compassion for those that suffer inequity. Awareness means that we need to learn about the causes and the possible solutions. We need to be awakened, we need to be aware, but we also need to acknowledge. To acknowledge that this, is, this has a divine dimension to it. You see, being woke and dealing with social justice is a matter of divine dignity. 
God created every person in his own image, and God expects every person to be treated fairly. And God holds us responsible to address these problems. He holds us responsible not just to minister on an individual basis, but to look for solutions that will help to end the social problems. Acknowledging also means this. Just as I said earlier, some of the things that I preach I didn't agree with yesterday because I looked at the Bible last night. We need to understand that we might just be part of perpetuating the problem. You see, we react negatively and say, oh, no, 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 I can't be a part of perpetuating the problem. I'm not racist. But we need to admit that we might be a part of perpetuating the problem. We need to acknowledge that we might still be asleep, that in fact we do need to be further awakened. It involves not only being awakened and aware but, and acknowledging, but to be accountable. The Bible calls us to be personally accountable. When we are guilty, and each person at some time in his or her life has been guilty of something that violates social justice on a micro level probably, we need to repent of our sin when we're truly guilty. But we need to be careful that we don't respond that way because we're falsely accused. There's some things that we do that are sins of commission. There's some things that are sins of omission. And we stand silently by in willing collusion and ignore the problem that's there. Well, that may be the sin of omission. We need to be accountable corporately as a church. We need to help to identify systemic injustice in our community and to hold institutions accountable for it. And finally, we need to act not just be accountable, but we need as individuals to engage the problem on a personal level and endeavor to be fair to everyone that we meet and to treat them with dignity as the Holy Spirit directs us to intercede and be the defender of the poor, be the defender of the person that is racially discriminated against. And we need to do this as individuals and as a church. You see, there is a biblical basis for social justice. What pleases God Justice pleases God. You heard Kevin read it. So what good does God expect from us? And it leads off with saying what? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The passage this morning that's in your bulletin shows us what displeases God. Habakkuk in the 7th century B.C., Israel had already fallen. And despite God's repeated call for repentance, Judah continued rebelling against him because they were violent, wicked, unjust, arrogant, dishonest, sexually immoral, and idolatrous. And Habakkuk calls out in that unjust or unjust society. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you not see inequity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. If there is a text that calls us from the Old Testament to stand for social justice, it comes from the writing of Habakkuk. In the New Testament, Jesus proclaimed in his mission statement outside Nazareth, Nazareth that he was about social justice. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those that are what? Oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. There's some evangelicals that say, well, you know, this isn't about social justice. His focus is on preaching the gospel, not social ministry. The poor are not not really poor. It's the poor in spirit, like in the Beatitudes. The captives are those that are enslaved to sin. He came to free them from sin. The blind are the ones that are spiritually blind. The problem with that, folks, is evidence from the life of Jesus is that it was about social justice. The evidence of his Messiahship was, you want to see that I am the one that is sent by God? He told the disciples of John, then just look at what I do. And what do I do? The things that I do cause the blind to see, the lame to walk, the lepers to be cured, the deaf to hear, the dead are raised. And yes, the good news is preached to the poor, and he doesn't say the poor in spirit. Neither does the Lucan version of the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the poor. So it's both the poor in spirit and the poor, those that are poverty and in poverty and, and without. You see, we cannot divide Jesus' social ministry and social just, from social justice. He came to free the oppressed. And the favorable year of the Lord points to a day someday when, in fact, all of these structures and institutions that we live with will be transformed. God is about social justice. Peter's testimony in Acts 10 goes on further to affirm this. You know, he says to, uh, the, to uh, the centurion, he says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And Cornelius hears these words, and he responds by accepting the Lord. Some would suggest that what he's talking about there is just spiritual oppression by the devil. That Jesus, what he's talking about is, or what Peter's talking about was that he freed them through exorcism and the forgiveness of sin. The problem with that is, folks, when you look at the accounts of what Jesus did in terms of healing and exorcism, the prevalence there is on his physical healing ministry. There are numerous passages that talk about his healing and casting out demons. But when you look at the specific examples in the Gospels, there are 24 recorded incidents where Jesus physically healed people, and three of them he also exercised. There are only two incidents where he specifically only exercised. My point is this. What Peter's talking about, he's talking about both physical and spiritual healing. And then Paul exhorts us in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even do what? Expose them. For you see, it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, and he quotes from the Old Testament, get up, sleeper, awake, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. The command is to be woke. The command is to awake. The command is to expose injustice wherever it may be. We cannot remain asleep. We cannot remain continued to be unaware of hidden sin around us. And we just look at Jesus' example. Did Jesus believe and practice social justice? Was he about transforming systems or was it only about healing individual people? He opposed systemic racism. When he stands outside Nazareth and he proclaims his mission, and that he has come to free the oppressed. And then he turns right around and he enrages the Jews 
when he says, oh, by the way, God also loved the widow of Zarephath. Oh, by the way, God also loved Naaman, the leper. You see what he's doing is he's opposing the racism of the Jews. When he cleanses the temple in Mark the 11th chapter, he is opposing systemic racism. He says, this is to be a house of prayer. And he didn't put this in parenthesis, not just for Jews, but that's what he meant. This is to be a house of prayer for what? For all nations. But that word nations, ethnoi, means all ethnic groups. He was against systemic racism. He opposed systemic sexism. The woman caught in adultery, he forgave her, and he told her to go and sin no more. At the same time, what he was really doing, he was silently rebuking those judges who did not bring the man to justice, only the woman. When he healed and commended the woman who touched him with the issue of blood, people looked at him and they were thinking, he shouldn't have done that. He, she has broken the law because she touched you, and yet he healed her. When he, when he commended the woman and forgave her, the sinful woman in Luke, the seventh chapter, who anointed his feet with oil. The Pharisees said, how can you do that? She's a sinner. And by the way, she's a woman. How can she touch you? And he blessed her. He opposed systemic sexism. He opposed systemic elitism. He looks at, the, at, at his disciples and said, watch out for the scribes. Look out for them. Because why? They want the places of honor at banquets. They want the chief seats in the synagogues. They want to walk through the streets and everybody call them by their wonderful titles. He opposed systemic elitism. He opposed systemic classism, that is, the rich over the poor. He rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees for devouring widows' houses. He opposed systemic moralism, religious prejudice. He was a friend of sinners. And everybody rebuked him for that. He ate and he fellowshiped with him. He called Levi, an unclean tax collector, to be in his inner circle. And he looks at Zacchaeus and he blesses Zacchaeus. As fraudulent and dishonest as Zacchaeus had been, he redeemed him. You see, he opposed that kind of moralistic religious prejudice. And he opposed systemic legalism. He rebuked the Pharisees eight times. For their system of legalism. I do think that Jesus believed in social justice. You see, genuine, genuine social justice is biblical justice. It's rooted in the scripture itself. When you look at the idea of justice in the Old Testament, it's mentioned over 1,100 times in various forms. In the New Testament, 233 times, over 1,300 times throughout scripture, not quite every page, but almost, justice is mentioned. It's rooted in the heart of God. What is God's view of justice? He has created everyone in his image equally, with equal dignity, with equal access to the throne of grace, regardless of race, color, creed, national origin, and equal accountability to God to be obedient to his word. Justice is rooted in the heart of God because he wants everyone to be free of oppression. And what is the root cause of oppression? What is the root cause of oppression? It's sin. And the remedy for sin is Christ's forgiveness. And the result of that is redemption and transformation. And I do believe in preaching a virile gospel, a robust gospel of the atonement and justification and salvation through Christ's blood alone. But it stops short, folks, if we believe that God is only about redeeming individual souls.
God is about redeeming all of his creation. We know this from Romans the 8th chapter, not just individual sinners. He is also about transforming secular institutions because you see they are the ones that mediate and perpetuate much of the sin. God is the author of nations. It is upon his authority that the rulers are in power today. God cares about the institutions with which we live. The evidence of this is that for 2,000 years since the cross, Christianity, followers of Christ, have been about transforming the institutions and society. Is there slavery still in the world? Yes. But is it rampant like it was 2,000 years ago? No. Are there still abuses of women? Is there still sexism? Yes. But is it as bad as it was 2,000 years ago? No. Are people still oppressed? Yes. But you see, the message of the gospel has not only brought freedom in Christ, but the freedom of Christ to transform society. Evidence of this. Historically, the church before the 20th century was always the catalyst for social ministry and social justice. You see, genuine, redemptive, transformative social justice is God's business. It begins and ends with ends with Christ. And it works itself out through the church. Just like social ministry, which was once the responsibility of the church in this nation, it has been abandoned by the churches. Friends, social ministry should not be relegated to the secular realm as a social phenomenon. It must be embraced. It must be recaptured. It must be baptized by the church. The church should take ownership of it again. It shouldn't be folks that do not believe in God, and I'm not saying all wokists do, but it shouldn't be people that are basing their thinking on Marxist theology and post-modernity. It ought to be people that are motivated by what the Bible says about being fair. So let me apply in closing. Awakening to biblical justice is awkward. I realize, and I think you do too. For example... How many of you have ever, that are not people of color, how many of you have ever really thought that a young black or brown young man or woman deals with the whole problem of double consciousness? You see, we all go through a stage in adolescence where we self-actualize and we understand who we are made to be by God. That happens to everyone. But you see, people of color also go through another kind of process. They filter their self-identity based on the lens of what, how culture looks at them. You see, they get their self-worth often by looking at how culture looks at us. How many of us have ever processed that? What about the talk? The talk that most minority parents have with each of their kids, people of color. It's the moment when that child realizes for the first time that they're somehow different from the majority of population. And it's that very same moment when the kid realizes that this may be a problem. And the parents have to tell them, well, you know what? It's going to be a lifelong problem. And the parent has to emphasize, and you need to be especially careful with the law. You need to be very, very careful that you always walk on the right side of the law. And when their child leaves their house to go to school or to work or whatever, the parent prays that, in fact, they won't be discriminated against what about incarceration? State prisons, the rate of black Americans is five times the rate of white Americans in state prisons. In state and federal prisons, the rate of Hispanic incarceration is twice that of whites. 
A third of all prisoners in federal prisons are Hispanic. What about the problems our youth are encountering in the inner cities and gang cultures that are growing by leaps and bounds every day? 50% of the crimes in America today, violent crimes, are committed by gangs. 50% of the human trafficking committed by gangs And 40% of the membership of those almost million members of gangs in America are youth under the age of 18. What about the problem of unintended pregnancies? The highest rate of unintended pregnancies in the developed world is in America. Females below poverty level are five times more likely to have unintended pregnancies than women of self-supporting income. What about teen birth rates? The good news is, folks, for the last 15 years, it's been dropping by 64%. The bad news is minority rates are still over twice as high as those in the majority. Folks, there are issues and problems out there that we don't think about, that we don't know about, and we're not aware of. And when people raise them to our consciousness, sometimes what we do is we react and we say, that's not our what? That's not our what? It's not our problem. So are we really engaged? Are we really prepared to engage these difficult issues? We've been talking about them for two, for two months. Are we really willing to engage with people that are different from us, that have gender identity issues, that believe in same-sex marriage, that are homosexual in their identity, people that are struggling with abortion, people that are in poverty and in unemployment, illegal immigrants amongst us, people who disagree with us about woke and race theory and cancel culture and all of that, are we willing to listen and to engage them in the difficult issues of life and share with them what the Bible says? Or will we we play it safe? Will we play it safe? Ignore the whole gospel mandate. Just preach. God wants justice and mercy and humility. That's good for us to preach. But then we don't do anything about injustice and ruthlessness and arrogance. Are we going to hide behind the false unbiblical claim that all we should do is preach the gospel in its most limited context, that is to save souls, and God will do the rest? God takes care of his creation, that's true, but he calls us to engage and to tackle those difficult issues and to address social injustice. Let me close with this. We, I think, must do so because it's our heritage. Baptists were born of that heritage. You see, Baptists were persecuted in the earliest days and for many years because they were outsiders, they were nonconformists. Baptists suffered social injustice for centuries, and yet Baptists always defended everyone's right to freedom of religion. This freedom of religion also includes the right to biblically sound social justice. You see, the best of Baptist tradition has always done this. Am I woke? Probably not as much as I should be. I'm not advocating cancel culture. I'm not advocating critical race theory. I'm not not advocating a radical political ideology. But I would pray that we all follow in the footsteps of people like T.B. Maston and Bill Step, and those that have walked before us and called us to be accountable and to do something about the problems around us. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.